Chapter 6 of Women's Suffrage in Politics. This is a Library Vox recording. All Library Vox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibraryVox.org. This recording is by Josie Cho. Women's Suffrage in Politics, the Inner Story of the Suffrage Movement by Carrie Chapman Catt and Nettie Rogers Schuler, The First Victory. In the midst of the baffling discouragement politics had wrought, a tiny, flickering star of victory arose out in the great mysterious West. So unimportant did it seem at the time that the revolution gave but three lines to the announcement and that in an inconspicuous corner. The map of the United States of America as represented in the geographies used of the public schools of the day denoted most of the territory lying between Nebraska and the Rockies as the Great American Desert. Out of this vastness, the federal government had carved a section large enough to accommodate an empire and called it Wyoming. A sparse and shifting population of adventurous men, sometimes with families, was scattered along the trails which led from the Council Bluffs to Oregon or California. The Union Railroad was completed halfway across Wyoming in 1867, and a city of tents sprang up as if by magic at the last stop called Cheyenne. Thousands of men poured in where dozens had been before, trappers, hunters, miners, prospectors, but all seekers of adventure. Saloons, dance halls, houses of prostitution, always numerous in frontier settlements, increased to such an extent that crime became rampant. Neither life nor property was respected, and robberies, holdups, and murders were everyday occurrences. The better element petitioned the Congress for the protection of an organized government. The Congress immediately granted the request by a bill providing for a territorial government, and President Johnson signed the bill. The conflict between the President and Congress was then at the climax of its bitterness, and Congress refused to confirm the President's appointees for the new territorial administration. The Wyoming government, therefore, was not organized until May 1869, when appointees of President Grant took charge. During the two intervening years, lawlessness had grown even more audacious, and the town of Laramie, established as another outpost on the Union Pacific, was duplicating the experiences of Cheyenne. The first election took place in September 1869, its purpose being the choice of delegates in the first legislature. At South Pass City, the largest town in the state, a settlement consisting of rows and shacks stretching along a ledge of the Wind River Mountains, the call for an election found 3,000 persons washing gold and dreaming of fortune. The blue and the gray, the loyalist and the copperhead, with the bygones laid aside, were amicably following the common lure of gold hunting. Politics offered an acceptable diversion and they promptly fell in line as Republicans and Democrats. Each group prepared to nominate candidates and defend them to the death. At this point, 20 of the most influential men in the community, including all the candidates of both parties, were invited to dinner at the shack of Mrs. Esther Morris, who had followed her husband and three sons into the trackless west. She was a newcomer with a complete understanding of the Eastern political treatment of Negro and woman suffrage, and her ears were still ringing the words of Susan B. Anthony, one of whose public lectures she had heard just before setting out upon her western journey. To her guest, she now presented the woman's case with such clarity and persuasion that each candidate gave her his solemn pledge that if elected, he would introduce and support a woman's suffrage bill. The election resulted in the choice of W.M.H. Bright, Democrat, who was elected president of the council when this legislature met October 1st, 1869. 
Many years after, in order that justice should be done, the memory of Mrs. Morris, Captain Nickerson, the Republican candidate defeated in 1869 but elected in 1871, wrote the story, giving entire credit to Mrs. Morris in the act of the territory, and filled his documentary evidence at the county seat of Sweetbriar County. The Wyoming September election reflected the hostility to Negro suffrage common in the country and was conducted in a manner to be expected of a turbulent population but are recently brought under the discipline of law. In the words of Hon. H. J. W. Kingman, Associate Justice in the Territory, there was a good deal of party feeling developed and Election Day witnessed a sharp and vigorous struggle. The candidates and their friends spent money freely and every liquor shop was thrown open to all who would drink. Peaceful people did not dare to walk the streets in the towns during the latter part of the day and evening. At South Pass City, some drunken fellows with large knives and loaded revolvers swaggered around the polls and swore that no Negro should vote. When one man remarked quietly that he thought the Negroes had a good right to vote just as any of them had, he was immediately knocked down, jumped on, kicked and pounded without mercy, and would have been killed had not his friends rushed into the brutal crowd and dragged him out, bloody and insensible. There were quite a number of colored men who wanted to vote, but did not dare approach the polls that until the United States Marshal himself, at their head and with revolver in hand, escorted them through the crowd, saying he would shoot the first man that interfered with them. There was as much quallering and tumult, but the Negroes voted. This was only a sample of all the day's doing, and it was characteristics of the election all over the territory. The result was that every Republican was defeated and every Democrat candidate elected. Mr. Bright, the newly elected president of the council, was described by those who knew him as a man of much energy and good natural endowments, but without much school education. His wife was reported to be a woman of unusual attainments, and Mrs. Morris completely converted them both to woman suffrage. Mr. Bright is quoted by ex-governor Hoyne as saying to his wife, Betty, it's a shame that I would be a member of the legislature and make laws for such a woman as you. You are a great deal better than I am. You know a great deal more, and you would have make a better member of the assembly than I. I have made up my mind that I will do everything in my power to give you the ballot. Arrived at Cheyenne, Mr. Bright set himself to the task of converting woman suffrage, the 22 men who composed the two houses of the legislature. He reminded his fellow members that the legislature was unanimously democratic, and that should it vote suffrage to women, it would show the world that Democrats were more liberal than the Republicans who confined their extensions of the vote to Negroes, and that should be the Republican governor veto the bill, it would give the Democrats a decided advantage. With all he argued the justice of the cause and pointed out such an act would advertise the territory as nothing else could. Meanwhile, men and women in different parts of the territory wrote their delegates, urging support of the bill on the 27th of November. Mr. Bright, having secured the necessary number of pledges, introduced the suffrage bill. The Council Territorial Senate, without discussion, passed by the measure by a vote of A6, nice 2, absent 1. In the House, the bill found an opponent as determined as was Mr. Bright, Mr. Ben Sheeks. A lively and acrimonious debate followed, and many amendments designed to kill the bill were introduced and voted down, one being that the word woman be stricken out and the words all colored woman and squaws be substituted. The original bill named 18 years as the qualified age of the woman voter. A proposal to substitute 21 for 18 was the only change made, and thus amended the bill passed. I 6, nays 4, absent 1, the council concurring. 
Several of those who had voted for the bill smarting under the gibes of outsiders who looked upon suffrage for women as wildly ridiculous soon regretted having done so. Friends and foes alike turned to John W. Campbell, the unmarried Republican governor, and pleaded with him, some to sign, some to veto the bill. Woman also called upon him, pleading for his signature to the bill. His interviewers found him vacillating, doubtful as to his duty. The determining factor proved to be a memory rising in the background of his mind and growing each hour more vivid and persistent. In that memory, he saw himself and other young boys, 19 years before, acting under the impulse of curiosity tempered with mischief, stealing into the back seats of the Second Baptist Church in Salem, Ohio, his birthplace. The attraction was a woman's right convention, which the entire village agreed was an unheard of innovation, a few of the other elders defending it, but more condemning it. The convention was the first in the state and different in one respect from others at that period. It was entirely officered by a woman and not a man was allowed to sit on the platform, speak, or vote. The woman issued an address to Ohio Woman, a memorial to the state con constitutional convention, about to sit, and passed 22 resolutions covering the whole range of women's political, religious, civil, and social rights. Although greetings of encouragement were received from many of their chief leaders of the movement, the convention speakers were all Ohio women. When it was over, the men who had been in attendance met together and endorsed all the ladies had said and done. An episode so remarkable had not failed to make its impression upon the boy, although in the intervening years no occasion had arisen to transform that the impression into conviction. Now the boy, grown to man, heard the voices once more, listened again to the arguments, and knew no answer to their appeal. With his mind made up in the words of ex-governor Hoyt, he saw that it was a long-deferred justice and so signed the bill as gladly as Abraham Lincoln wrote his name to the proclamation of all emancipation of the slaves. Of course, continues Mr. Hoyt, the women were astounded. If a whole troop of angels had come down with flaming swords for their vindication, they would have not have been much more astonished than they were when that bill became a law and the women of Wyoming were thus clothed with the habiliments of citizenship. The two years which intervened before the next legislative election were eventful ones to the woman's cause in the territory. Soon after the passage of the bill, Mrs. Esther Morris was surprised by an appointment as Justice of the Peace at South Pass City. Owing to the fact that the population was sparse and regular courts were not yet numerous, a Justice of the Peace was an important officer and frequently heard cases, which in after years would have gone to the other courts. The rowdies of the place undertook to intimidate Mrs. Morris and thus force her resignation, and incidentally proved that women were unequal to the performance of political duties, but they retired humiliated and discomfited from the contest. Nearly 40 cases were brought before her, and so justly did she administer them that not one was appealed to a higher court. Justice Morris and her court at the South Pass City aroused widespread comment throughout the nation, the reports being both true and false, favorable and unfavorable. At the first term of the district court held after the first legislature, women as well as men were drawn for grand and petite jurors. The enemies of woman suffrage had caused this action, intending thereby to make the whole cause of woman in politics so obnoxious to the public that it would prepare the way for a repeal of the woman's suffrage measures at the next legislature. On the contrary, the woman jurors were continuously complimented and praised by the judges and press. The first mixed grand jury was in session for three weeks during which time bills were brought for consideration of several murder cases, cattle and horse stealing and illegal branding. All of the bills strangely commencing 
we good and lawful male and female jurors on oath do say. When Justice Howe addressed this jury in an incidentally a packed courtroom, he assured the woman that there was not only no impropriety in their serving as jurors, but that their service was needed in the effort to secure a law-bidding community. Said he, You shall not be driven by the sneers, jeers, and insults of a laughing crowd from the temple of justice as your sisters have been from some of the medical colleges on the land. When the grand jury was discharged, Judge Howe complimented the woman upon the service rendered during this first term of the territorial court, saying that women would make just as good jurors as men, if not a great deal better. A petite jury soon thereafter tried a murder case, the indictment having been brought in by the grand jury. Six women and six men composed the jury. When the case was referred to the jury, it was unable to come to a decision, and the jury, as is customary, was locked up. This was the possibility that had done duty in all lands as a decisive reason why women should never serve as jurors. The sheriff of Albany County, Wyoming, solved the problems easily enough upon this first occasion. The jury was retired in two rooms at the chief hotel. A man, bailiff, was placed on guard at the door of the men's room, and a woman bailiff, the door of the woman's room. There was still another incident new in the history of juries. While the men, in the effort to while away a few weary hours, were engaged in playing cards, smoking, and drinking beer, their attention was arrested by the notes of a hymn coming from the woman juror's room, easily heard through the thin walls. Presently, they heard the minister's wife ask the jurors to kneel with her in prayer, while she asked the highest court to give them guidance in arriving at a just verdict. For two and a half days and nights, the jury labored to reach a decision. Fifty years after, when the secrets of that jury's action could be told, it was learned that the six women voted from the first for conviction and that the delay was occasioned by three men who voted for acquittal. The verdict was manslaughter and was signed with a pen fashioned from an eagle's quill. The news of these women jurors spread far and wide. King William of Prussia sent a congratulatory cable to President Grant upon this evidence of progress, enlightenment, and civil liberty in America. While arousing much discussion and winning approval among the law-abiding women, jurors were less popular among other classes, as was evidenced in the second legislature. The legislature of 1871 contained a minority of Republicans. Nine days after the legislature convened, a bill to repeal woman suffrage was introduced. The leader of the suffrage opposition in 1869, Ben Sheeks, was the only man in either house who had returned, and he was elected as Speaker of that house. He devoted his entire attention to the repeal bill, which was passed the following day, eyes nine, nays three, absent one, every vote for, for repeal being Democratic and every vote against being Republican. On November 28th, the bill passed the council by a vote of eyes five, all Democrat, and nays four, all Republican. Governor Campbell, Republican, promptly vetoed the bill, saying in his message that to repeal it at the time would advertise to the world that women in their use of enfranchisement had not justified the acts of the members of the previous session and that such an imputation would be false and untenable. The House passed the repeal over the governor's veto by the required two-thirds vote, eyes nine Democrats and nays two Republican, with two absentees who had paired their votes. In the council of the repeal, who did not secure a two-thirds vote, eyes five Democratic, nays four Republican, thus woman suffrage was preserved by a single vote, for had one Republican deserted and voted with the Democrats, the two-thirds vote for repeal would have been secured. No effort was ever made again to repeal woman suffrage in Wyoming. 
Twenty years after 1889, a constitutional convention met in September to frame a constitution preparatory to statehood. In the preceding June, a women's convention had been called, and a hundred of the most prominent women of the territory had attended it. The purpose of the convention had been carried out in the adoption of the following resolution. Resolved that we demand of the constitutional convention that women's suffrage be affirmed in the state constitution. Not a single delegate in the Constitutional Convention opposed women's suffrage, but one delegate proposed that the question be submitted to the people separately from the Constitution, as it was likely to prove difficult for the state to get into the Union with women's suffrage in the Constitution. The proposal brought out such a staunch and unyielding protest, and the women's suffrage clause was included in the Constitution. The Committee on Territories in the House of Representatives recommended the admission of Wyoming, but William M. Springer, Democrat of Illinois, brought in a minority report consisting of 23 pages, 21 devoted to objections because of the women's suffrage article. The territory was Republican and would send two Republicans to the Senate. The battle fiercely waged against its admission as a state was therefore led and chiefly supported by Democrats, women's suffrage furnishing a convenient excuse for opposition. The ghosts of Reconstruction came forth from their hiding places and stalked the aisles of the United States Senate and House once more off and on making their presence known whenever the bill came up during a period of six months. Lengthy speeches by representatives from Alabama, Arkansas, Delaware, Georgia, Tennessee, Missouri, and Texas, bitter, punitive, and ignorantly hostile, marked the opposition. Women's suffrage will result in unsexing womanhood. It is a reform against nature. Let her stay in the sphere to which God and the Bible have assigned her. They are going to make men of women, and the correlative must take place that men become women. During the debate, when it seemed impossible that Congress would consent to the admission of Wyoming with women's suffrage in its constitution, Delegate James Carey telegraphed the Wyoming legislature, then in session asked for advice. The answer came back, We will remain out of the Union a hundred years rather than come in without women's suffrage. This staunch response stiffened the faith of the Friends and won votes of Republicans who were not yet ready to approve of women's suffrage. The Bill of Admission passed the House March 28, 1890, by a vote of 139 eyes to 127 nays. The procedure was repeated in the Senate, action being postponed several times. The effort to amend by striking out women's suffrage having failed there also, the Bill of Admission was passed June 27, 1890, by 29 eyes, 18 nays, 37 absent. And the Congress Republicans opposed to women's suffrage had held quite unitedly that the state should have the right to decide who should vote within it, the Democrats, always contending that suffrage was a matter for the consideration of states, now refused to accept the principle and demanded a federal veto on state action. The bill passed by a party vote, Republicans voting for admission and Democrats against. From the year 1869, every governor, chief justice, and many prominent citizens of Wyoming have given endorsements of the beneficence of women's suffrage. Not one reputable person in the state said over his or her own signature that women's suffrage is other than an unimpeachable success in Wyoming. At one time, suffragists in the East were dismayed because Boston Papers carried an interview with a prominent gentleman from Wyoming, who declared that all the beliefs of the opponents of women's suffrage had proved true in the state. A telegram to the mayor of Cheyenne, asking for particulars concerning this prominent gentleman, brought back the quick response. A horse thief convicted by a jury, half of whom were women. For 50 years, Wyoming served as the Levin, which lightened the prejudices of the entire world. She pronounced false every prediction of anti-suffragists and gave so much evidence of positive good to the community, arising from the votes of women that she became the direct cause of the establishment 
of women's suffrage in all the surrounding states. Amid the gibes and the jests, ridicule and the ribaldry, Wyoming stood fast through the generations until the nation acknowledged that she was right and stood with her. End of chapter 6. Recording by Josie Cho, January 31st, 2021.